Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, June 2nd, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. It's the week before the California primary, and here are the numbers that mattered. 11 million. That's how much money the libertarian ticket could raise to try to disrupt Trump. 26. The number of superdelegates Bernie Sanders won out of a total of 134 available in states where he actually defeated Hillary Clinton. Three. The number of points Trump has gained on Clinton since clinching the GOP nomination. And 25, the percentage of candidates' Twitter followers who were actually just bots. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Here we are again. Welcome back to Eli Stokels. Hi. Glad to see you return, Eli, with all your limbs intact. Just barely. From the Trump trail. That's right. Ken Vogel. Hi. And senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Hi, Kristen. Let's start. Data point number one, 11.1 million. That's how much money a trio of libertarian-themed super PACs raised to support Rand Paul. Let's talk a little bit about that in the context of the new libertarian ticket. Headliner, Gary Johnson, second in command on that one, Bill Weld. Ken, what's the importance here? Well, certainly there's there's room for a third-party ticket to really... Uh, cause some problems and siphon off some votes from Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, deeply unpopular general election nominees or presumptive nominees. And uh, and Gary Johnson just happens to be the guy, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, who are at the top of the ticket of a party that will be on the ballot in all 50 states, which is something that you can't say for a lot of these other parties and a lot of these independent efforts that uh, various disgruntled Republicans are talking about. So how do they take advantage of it? One of the ways that they have not shown an ability in the past to take advantage of is by raising some serious money to get on the airways or do some savvy digital advertising that can get their message out there to voters who might be unhappy with the two major party choices. But in a campaign cycle that has already seen more than a billion dollars spent on both sides, how does 11 million make a difference? Well, it would make a difference if they could find a savvy way to do digital advertising and really target the types of voters who would be uh, among those that are most likely to be disaffected by Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. It's not just targeting like a a type of voter like... uh, you know, young women are you know who who like Bernie Sanders, uh, which is probably a good good place to start. But it's also targeting them in geographically figuring out in which states you have sort of the most pockets of them, and so that costs money. You don't necessarily need a huge over the airwaves advertising campaign, but with ten with ten million dollars or more, you can mount a serious digital effort. And I think that there is some potential for them with the big donors who are libertarians who are unhappy with Trump to raise that kind of money. I think there's a lot of money in the libertarian community uh, that can be mined, whether you're talking about Silicon Valley or Austin, Texas. But to me, to be honest, Ken, uh, the idea like that a digital ad campaign is really going to make a material difference 
is kind of a stretch, I, I think. Uh, I mean, think about what he – it will make a difference for a Gary Johnson campaign because if you look at his 2012 campaign, he spent less than you would in a small state Senate race. So, you know, $11 million is a big deal to him. But having said that, to me, the ultimate indicator of his, his success is whether he hits an, uh, a polling threshold that gets him into the fall debates. Uh, and, and short of that – I don't think the, anything else matters. But that's that's I mean the, the, the sort of chicken and egg thing right. going on there. I mean to get the name out there and to get the message out there. I mean it's really just the name, you know. It's really just like there is a third party option, and yeah, to target to target these uh, f- you know folks who might not be ready to support you know either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump with very specific message driven. Um, uh, ads digitally, I think, is the way is the way to go for that because again, there's just not ten million dollars is not enough to do a serious over the airwaves campaign. Um, that said, you know, there's some questions, including among the likely donors who have uh, given big money to libertarian causes and candidates in the past about whether Gary Johnson is a good candidate. In fact, our own Shane Goldmacher in a story from the Libertarian Party convention quotes Freda Levin, who's uh, he calls her an influential libert- uh, libertarian-leaning Republican donor who has hosted Gary Johnson at her home. And I would add that uh, Freda Levitt is just a great, uh, great, great source because she's one of those rare mega donors who's willing to kind of pull back the curtain and tell you her unvarnished feelings. In this case, what she says is Gary Johnson has a bigger problem than the no money problem. He's not a good speaker and he's not a good <laughs> debater. So other than those things, uh, that so that's where you sort of get into the disconnect between the the potential traction for a third party candidate and Gary Johnson's campaign. The point of all this, though, really is not for a libertarian ticket to win the White House. Nobody is walking into this thing thinking that Johnson and Weld are going to win the White House. The point, really, for them is to disrupt Trump. Is it not, Eli? Well, for some never-Trump people, that's the question they're asking themselves is, can Gary Johnson be a vehicle for them to, in a couple of important states, a state like Virginia, perhaps, a can he win enough of the vote to prevent Trump from winning and thus make sure Trump doesn't win the White House? I mean, the Republicans are sort of nervous right now because they also don't want to give Trump an excuse. When they talk about the libertarian ticket, when they talk about a possible independent conservative ticket like Bill Kristol is you know, fantasizing about, what they're thinking is, does this make sense? Is it most important to make sure Trump doesn't win? Or do we want to make sure he loses, but we can't give him an excuse to say, well, there were two other candidates that screwed me, and that's why I lost. I mean, they want him to lose on the merits to Hillary Clinton. The problem for a lot of the never-Trump people with a libertarian ticket is that, in a lot of ways, Gary Johnson is closer ideologically to Bernie Sanders than he is to traditional conservative principles talk about marijuana, you talk about criminal justice. There are a number of issues on which he is not a traditional conservative either. And for you think about the never Trump people, I talked to a lot of them this week. What is the, you know, where the biggest never Trump people come from are the blocks of national security Republicans and social conservatives. Those are not exactly right in Gary Johnson's wheelhouse. Those folks are the exact opposite of Gary Johnson's wheelhouse. Gary Johnson being a non-interventionist, and you're right, I think a lot of the, the, the push on the right for an uh, alternative to Trump comes from the neocons. Gary Johnson is probably to the left of Bernie Sanders on national security, certainly to the left. I mean, you could argue that Trump is to the left of Hillary Clinton, but Bernie Sanders and is to the left of both of them. Gary Johnson is even further to the left and on the social issues. This is a guy who supports gay marriage, supports abortion rights. This is not going to uh, put him in good 
instead with evangelical voters. I was at the NRA convention a couple weeks ago in Louisville, and I f- bumped into a friend of mine from Colorado, and she's an NRA member. And I said, "What are you? What are you going to do with this? You know, with Trump?" And she said, "I'm thinking about." I'm thinking about Gary Johnson because I don't trust Trump on guns. And that is one policy issue perhaps where a libertarian might be closer in line with some of the more conservative ideological positions, although I think that's an outlier. And I think that you know, generally what we're talking about here, he does not align with the never Trump conservatives worldview any better really than Donald Trump. And if you're looking for people, operatives, people to go help Gary Johnson, I mean a guy like Tim Miller seasoned conservative operative, a little more moderate, could be a person who could really help a Gary Johnson go out and get noticed, right? Tim is great at sort of finding ways to create attention and buzz and sort of with some snark and some attitude get a message across in this media environment. Would a Tim Miller go work for Gary Johnson and help raise his profile? Probably not. He hasn't answered that question directly to me, but the sense I get from him and other Republican operatives in that Never Trump world is... Eh, I'll go on TV, I'll criticize Trump, I can live with that, I can live with being never Hillary and also never Trump. But for Republican operatives to go work for somebody outside the party affiliated with another party, that is probably a bridge too far for a lot of these people who are looking to a future and saying, I want to I work in conservative Republican politics in the future. I'm not going to go work for the libertarian candidate in this cycle, even though this is a crazy cycle. What's most interesting about it it is the most viable libertarian party ticket that we've seen maybe ever. Ever. Uh, And it's pretty fascinating because uh, there's a kind of like a Felix and Oscar Laurel and Hardy feel to it. You know, you've got the rough hewn outdoorsy Westerner and then you've got the, uh, you know, the, the wealthy patrician Bostonian on the other end. You know, clearly those guys haven't talked a lot because there's a lot of sunlight between their positions. But what's fascinating about the ticket is that it's, it's beyond the viability is the idea that they can draw from both parties. Uh, because, and, and here's why. I mean, as Ken was mentioning, Johnson's stance is really unique. He's anti, he was anti-war, anti-drug war, pro-abortion rights, and also pro-gay marriage before it was cool. And I think that's really important to note that he was a Republican that was for gay marriage before the dam broke. Uh, and, and that is notable. And Weld, it's easily forgotten, uh, and especially after the coverage of the Libertarian Convention, but in the 90s, Weld was seen as one of the foremost conservative policy innovators. He was one of the, what I would consider the big three conservative governors in the 90s who really you know, implemented this, this vision of conservative governance uh, that was followed by the whole party. And I think in many ways, the, the Republican Revolution in 1994 took a lot of its ideas from uh, folks like William Weld and Tommy Thompson and John Engler in Michigan. And so there's a sort of conservative element to it, even if Weld does depart, part, depart from party orthodoxy in a number and, of ways. And there's another thing that Weld brings to the table that Gary Johnson doesn't, at least he did bring to the table, which is connection to some elite donors. I mean, this is a guy who, not just in his stances, which, as you point out, are sort of that a little bit of that Rockefeller Republican thing that Wall Streeters just love and, and pine for the return of. But in addition, he actually knows some of these folks. And so my understanding is that they're trying to dispatch him in very targeted ways to go meet with big donors. What's so interesting about Johnson is even though there is this opening, he hasn't really done much on the money side to take advantage of it. In fact, I was talking with the guy Jeff Yass, a prominent libertarian donor out of Philadelphia on the main line. He was one of the guys who pioneered high-frequency trading. Uh, 
got a ton of money, gave $2.8 million to the Rand Paul Super PACs, mm. which, you know, you might as well just flushed it down the toilet given, uh, <laughs> given how that went and how that money was spent. But he said, yeah, he'd be willing to consider Gary Johnson. But he said, neither the folks who have been talked about as running the pro Gary Johnson Super PACs nor Gary Johnson himself have reached out to him. And I'm like, what do you want me to like play matchmaker here? Like this is the you know like this is like some low hanging fruit for you guys, and and you're not taking advantage of it. So it it, it the you know it will be interesting to see whether Weld steps in there because Gary Johnson, in addition to not having connections to some of these big donors, openly admits that he doesn't like fundraising. Weld uh, a little bit of a different story. The question is whether his Rolodex is up to date enough or not to take advantage of this hunger among not just voters but donors. For a third option. So inside the Trump team, Eli, and you just came off the trail, how are they viewing this Johnson thing? You know, is this, do they see this as, you know, Charlie suggested that it's a net neutral because Johnson can take votes from Hillary Clinton too, or do they see this as a risk? Uh, I think they mostly see it uh, that way, as though, you know, this will be a push, whatever votes they get. I think they're watching it. Um, but I think they look at this and they have this sort of arrogance that is not I'm not talking about Donald Trump arrogance like I'm the greatest. I'm talking about the arrogance that is the result of what they've done already and how they've of won. Winning. And they have sort of just said, screw it. We know we've got Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a phenomenon. The campaign is between Donald Trump's ears. It's not an organization. It's not a staff. It's just Donald Trump. And so far, that has been enough. He has done everything he's needed to do media-wise. He hasn't needed organization. He hasn't needed a fundraising network. He's going to need it in the general election. But I think they just look at this guy just like, you know, he was crapping on Bill Crystal floating David French and, and, you know, laughing that off. I think they look at this and they say, okay, maybe it's a little more serious than, than that. But generally speaking, this is not really uh, anything they're all that concerned with. They're thinking about Hillary Clinton, uh, and they're looking at winning states, and they don't think that this guy's really in their way just yet. All right, let's talk about Democrats. Our next data point, 26 out of 134. Charlie, what is this? Okay, so when we talk about delegates, we're talking about a two-front war on the Democratic side. There's the war for pledged delegates, and then there's the war for the superdelegates. And the superdelegates, as everyone knows, uh, are the, you know, the, the members of Congress. They're the big-name Democratic officials, famous names, uh, and they get to do whatever they want and support whoever they want. And in this race, they've been a really big issue because most of them support Hillary Clinton. The universe of superdelegates is uh, probably about 715 in total, and She's got over 500 of them, and it drives Bernie Sanders nuts. So the number that you just read, Kristen, this 26 of 134, I think really gets to the heart of why Sanders supporters are so pissed off and why Bernie Sanders uh, reacts the way he does and talks about superdelegates all the time. And that number refers to um, in the 20 states that Bernie Sanders won the popular vote. He picked up just 26 of the available 134 superdelegates, so one in five. And so you can see why uh, the Sanders uh, supporters are so aggrieved and why they talk about a rigged process. So they imagine you, you live in Wyoming. You went out, you spent your Saturday uh, at a, at a uh, state convention or in any of these states where there was a caucus or even a primary. You spent your time, you committed to the campaign, and then you find out at the end of the day that even though your candidate, Bernie Sanders, won the state, 
Hillary Clinton, the rival, comes out of the state with a bigger net gain of delegates, largely because of these superdelegates that decided to just dispatch with the popular vote and support the candidate that they wanted to. Um, and so that, I think, really speaks to the anger of the Sanders people, a number like that, that he wins 20 states, but of the 134 available superdelegates in those states, he only gets 26 of them. Remember, remember in 2008 when we were having this protracted battle for the Democratic nomination between Clinton and Obama, and these superdelegates were like celebrities, and we were calling them up and trying to figure out where they were, and people were doing superdelegate trackers, and some of these people who were like, I mean, yes, there are some big-name folks, but they're just like party officials who you don't know. I remember like Stevie Barra was this guy in uh, maybe like Arizona, one of the western states, and he was like a superstar because he was like one of the superdelegates who was tracking the other superdelegates and who was giving quotes, and people were like publishing lists of the superdelegates to like call these people and tell them support Obama or support Clinton. It doesn't seem to be happening that way this time. There's this vague sense that somehow the superdelegates are the, the, you know, the puppet masters who are pulling the strings and, and you know, somehow uh, uh, you know, subverting the democratic process and keeping Bernie Sanders from his rightful inheritance of the democratic nomination. I'm talking about among his people. But we don't see them, the superdelegates themselves as individuals you know, be, as like players uh, to be courted. I mean, I wonder why, uh, if you agree with that, and if so, why you think that is? Well, I, I think there's a big difference between 2008 and 2012 with the superdelegates. And you mean it's, 16. I'm sorry, 2008 and 2016. Um, the big difference is this. In 2008, lots of superdelegates did the same thing they did in 2016. Because keep in mind, many of the superdelegates are elected politicians themselves. So they are always thinking, they're always working their angle. So they love the candidate, say it's Hillary Clinton, but they're also thinking about their own political future. They want to get on the winning team. So they know they have to get on that train early. So in 2008, as they did in 2016, they all lined up with Hillary Clinton. But what they discovered midway through the campaign season in 2008 was that it could be politically costly to them because people back home in their districts were getting angry at them. Um, and they also began to see Obama as a viable nominee for the party. Here's the difference in 2016. In tw and so, I'm sorry, to go back to 2008, so many of them flipped. Couple, probably about three dozen flipped from Hillary Clinton to Barack Obama. In 2016, so far, not a single superdelegate has flipped. And I think the reason is that they, number one, there aren't very many of them who are afraid of the blowback in their seats, number one. And number two, they're still not convinced that Bernie Sanders can win in November. I mean, it's not a single superdelegate has though. flipped. They don't like him. Right. They don't like him. You know, they've had a lot of years working with this guy in the Senate where he didn't get much done at all. He was not a player. And so he didn't develop relationships. Or a team player. Not a team player either. He's got a little right. bit of a Ted Cruz in him, right? Like, he was not a guy who created a lot of friendships or alliances in the Senate. And now he's looking at these superdelegates and saying, hey, you should flip. You should come to me. It's not a compelling argument for them. It is funny, though, and you think beyond June 7th, right, and, beyond, and once this is over with and what happens, because that we're in a place now where, you know, people understand the process of politics far better. Maybe that's because there's better coverage. Maybe that's just because this has been such a it's weird campaign. I don't think it's because of it's me. Your but exceptional um, coverage. Yeah. So I'm in this cab or Uber in San Diego over the weekend coming back from the Trump rally, and I, and I got this driver who's like 60-year-old white guy, surf shorts, sitting in the front seat, and he asked me what I'm doing there, and I'm talking, oh, I was covering the Trump rally, and he goes on and on about how he hates Trump. And then he starts bitching about Bernie. 
He's a Bernie guy, he tells me, and he's mad because the process is rigged. And he says, he, I, I don't know if I can vote for Hillary. I, they're, they're taking this away from Bernie. He's bitching about superdelegates. I mean, there is an understanding, or at least a sort of broad brush understanding, of this process and the difference between superdelegates and delegates and the feeling that it is rigged. And that is a problem because what do the Democrats do? Just like the Republicans are trying to bring home all these people who were never Trump. At the end of this, this is as or maybe more contentious. It's certainly running later than the Republican side. What do the Democrats do? And and this dovetails back to the Gary Johnson discussion. But what do the Bernie people do when they feel like, you know, he won all these votes. He, he lost because of this sort of unfair rules. Um, where do those people go? Do they just come back to Hillary Clinton? Or are they too? Well, it depends aggrieved? on what he does, though, right, Charlie? I mean, he's already making some power moves. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that in some ways, in in recent weeks, Sanders has been almost, to me, radicalized in his approach. Almost every other day shows some sort of muscle flexing exercise for him, sticking it in Debbie Wasserman Schultz's face by supporting her primary challenger, you know, making more demands on the platform committee in, in terms of delegate allocation. It's almost every day you see something new from their campaign. And I think it's a reflection of anger within that campaign that, hey, you know, I've won 20 states. I've won millions of, of votes. I've brought tons of new people into the process and give me my props. And I think until the Democratic Party does a better job of recognizing that, whether they like it or not, it's up in question like what his reaction is going to be after the June 7th primary. This is the story that's coming. Do you remember right? the, the story ad? of the parties and how um, how weak the party apparatus was on both sides, how poor the leadership was, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, but also Reince Priebus, how they got let this on both sides or get away from Or how bad the so-called establishment candidates proved to be. I mean, Hillary, at least, is probably going to still win this thing on the Republican side. Jeb and Ruby, I mean, they just, they got blown away. But I just recall the ad, the ad that Bernie ran early in this primary campaign, the Simon and Garfunkel America music video ad. And it was so uplifting, right? And it made, it was like this feel-good ad, and the girl was carrying the goat around and it was like oh and it was like this is our champion it was all the like hippie ben and jerry's eating you know like lefties from all years ago sitting there being like oh yeah goats and bernie and like america and that's gone now right it's like this is no longer happy and uplifting and idealistic and like progressive values this is anger driven now and that's a problem because if it was just the former and that was dovetailing now into hillary clinton's campaign maybe you'd say okay this primary made Hillary a better candidate. It helped the Democratic Party ha have out some of these conversations about issues. But yeah, what we're talking about now is Bernie is making demands. Bernie is the crazy old man who won't get out of Hillary's way. He's he's hurting Hillary. There's all these hard feelings now. Yeah, you know, to get back to Kristen's point about about the parties and the party and this this really illustrating the party's weakness. The sort of ironic thing is the Democratic Party and the Democratic establishment, which eventually will get its candidate, wanted Hillary Clinton, and so to that extent did a better job of sort of rallying the base, harnessing the energy, and even though there are a lot of people, including Bernie Sanders and a ton of his supporters, who feel disaffected by it, they will end up controlling the process better than the Republican Party. That said, all the momentum appears to be on Trump's side, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, and it's it seems at least partly because he has this sort of, it, 
organic movement to some extent behind him that Hillary Clinton does not have. Hillary Clinton is very much getting the nomination through sort of the regular party process, even if it has been in fits and starts. Uh, and part of that is because of the superdelegates. But also, look, part of that is because she is more than three million more votes than Bernie Sanders, a right. fact that Bernie Sanders supporters often tend to conveniently overlook pinning it all on the superdelegates. Last thing I'll say on superdelegates, Stevie Barr from California, not from Arizona. And he got removed. He lost his position as a superdelegate after 2008. So maybe there's a little bit of a lesson for you. The superdelegates, uh, while we treated them as celebrities and real players back in 2008, some of the folks who were prominent back then are no longer superdelegates. Maybe that's because the party didn't want them to be as prominent as they were. One, one thing we didn't get to, and I think it's just important to, to note, is that we're also dealing with much bigger historical forces that I think are at play here with the, with the Sanders challenge. I mean, the Democratic Party is about to go through a crack up in the same way that the Republican Party did. And it's so easy to forget that, that uh, political parties are like living organisms. And you can see that through history, the way they change and they evolve. And you see it happening right now with all the, the what I would call like Bernie babies challenging uh, establishment Democrats in the primaries. And it's almost like what happened, uh, you know, beginning in around 2010 with the Republican Party. And we're going to see that going forward. And this is the biggest and most noticeable expression of that right now. So Bernie has spawned a Democratic Tea Party is what you're saying. Exactly. I do think that. All right. It's time to bring in Scott Land, our campaign pro editor. Hello. Hi, Scott. You're bringing into this room another data point, and it's 25. That's the share of fake Twitter followers Donald Trump and the other candidates have. Tell me some more about these bots. Yeah, so it turns out people have been looking into this a little bit. The, you know, Trump and, and Clinton and Sanders at this point have amassed these huge Twitter followings, uh, ma many of whom are, are, you know, kind of retweeting and, and projecting uh, their messages all day long. It turns out a lot of them are not real people, right? And, and this, this goes on, you know, has gone on for, for as long as Twitter has been around. Years, and, yeah. and, uh, but, but it turns out, you know, according to a, a new study, and Wired wrote it up uh, a couple weeks ago, that uh, Trump doesn't actually have, uh, you know, a greater share of fake Twitter followers than anyone else. Some of them are just louder uh, than others. But, the, you know, everyone is kind of hovering around this, this quarter share um, of, of just these, these fake people online. And actually, the thing that struck me about that, the thing that I think is really interesting, first of all, these people are obviously driving a, a Twitter conversation in an inorganic way. Uh, but it also, it it feeds back into this issue that uh, digital advertisers have in politics right now, which, and we've been hearing for years and years and years, digital is becoming a bigger and bigger part of these campaigns, a more important part of the advertising mix. Uh, at the same time, what uh, the, the people who are pushing digital advertising don't want to talk about as much is that, to quote a recent headline from Ad Exchanger, bots and fraudsters are feasting on political ad dollars. And, mm. and the political ad market is particularly susceptible to wasting money on, on serving ads to, uh, to people who aren't real. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, the, one of the competitive advantages of, of digital ads is that they cost far less, just a fraction of TV or radio, but the question is, what are you getting for your buck? I mean, that's the same question that we face in in polit, you know, in, in digital media with selling ads, uh, and it's it still is you know a lot easier for people to measure 
your impact and you know your uh, the the number of eyeballs that you're reaching on TV or the number of ears that you're reaching on radio. I mean, talk about like click through rates on email lists, and that's certainly one thing that's there. But even those can be kind of gamed a little bit. Can I be the wet blanket here? Please. I mean, who cares? Like Donald Trump has 8.5 million followers. So what if a quarter of them are phony, phony bots? Like the guy still has a huge following on Twitter. And at the same time, we sit there and jump when he speaks on Twitter. So, I mean, a quarter of them are, are phony. Who cares? Like he still You know what I think, though? I've been, I've been struggling with this today, too. In fact, all morning I was thinking, like, why does it matter? Why does it matter? My mind keeps going back to this idea that Twitter is not something that matters to real people, right? It matters to us, okay? <laughs> literally it matters, in this case. It matter, literally in this case. It matters to media. It matters to, uh, you know, politicians and their staff. But real America doesn't care at all about Twitter. However, I think how we are reacting to Twitter when we see a bunch of fake Hispanics retweeting Donald Trump or saying things positively about Donald Trump, we say, okay, wait, 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 maybe he is winning the Latino vote. And we go out searching for these stories that then end up on Facebook, and Facebook does matter to real America. Yeah, I mean, you know why You know why it does matter is because, and it's sort of what you're saying, it's because so many of the old metrics that we use to gauge the viability of a candidate or a campaign are sort of out the window, whether it's fundraising. Donald Trump didn't raise any money, you know, and he's, he's clinched the GOP nomination. Whether it's advertising spending, Donald Trump didn't spend a lot on ads and he's clinching the nomination. Or whether it's, you know, polling. You know, we saw all these skeptical uh, uh, takes on whether Donald Trump's poll numbers were real. Well, they were real. So we're looking for new ways to assess viability, and Twitter followers is one way. Facebook likes stuff like that is one way that we look at to gauge viability of a candidate in this new digital media age. And the campaigns, maybe not Trump's as much, but campaigns up and down the ballot have been acutely sensitive to this. They tout their Twitter followers and they tout their number of Facebook likes to show how, you know, how they're gaining traction out there. And it's so, you know, to the point where they're so sensitive to these allegations that they might be engaging in some chicanery to boost these numbers. I remember I wrote this devastating, what I thought was a devastating story about (laughs) Americans for Prosperity, the Koch brothers-backed advocacy group, and some, um, uh, you know, misspending, some, uh, uh, you know, internal audits that raised concerns about about the management culture and overspending, a lack of coordination. I had all this stuff about huge staff bonuses, fancy restaurant meals being expensed, you know, sporting event-related costs, contracts to relate, you know, firms that are connected to their operatives but the one thing that they were so upset about they challenged me to all the way to publication we still ended up writing was that the allegation which we had actual documents of showing that they had purchased twitter followers that was a bridge too far they pushed back on that so aggressively because they too believe that there's something there that indicates popular support whether there is or not this study would suggest maybe not so much issue though i mean back in 2014 Darren Samuelson hooked up with an IT security firm, right, and found that Barack Obama, almost half, 46.8% of his followers were fake. And the question there becomes, you know, how how much of that is people latching on to the, you know, bots latching on to the account as a way to kind of further their own uh, ends versus, or in, in other cases where you end up with people purchasing uh 
purchasing bots, you know, as, as additional followers to, to, to boost their numbers. And I think going back to Ken's point, I think Google search an analytics is another, uh, Google search trends is another thing that's, that's becoming really big in campaigns in, in terms of like touting their appeal and how it's going. We saw that a lot during the debates at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, uh, in terms of how the Republican candidates were gaining traction or not. And it was always another one of those indicators about how Donald Trump was dominating uh, the rest of his competitors in terms of what real Americans were were thinking about and looking at. And, and you know, there's a value to some of this stuff. So there's actually like a, 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 a bottom line consideration. And you look at things like email lists where like, you know, whether it's Mitt Romney in 2012 or Hillary Clinton in 2008, they built these massive email lists, or Bernie Sanders uh, today, and these email lists become valuable commodities to be rented to camp to other campaigns to be for them to hit up the email list to try to raise money. And so the number of the number of addresses on that list is key, even if some of them are defunct. Many of them are defunct or inactive, and uh, that's why they try to measure things like click-through rates to see how many your real and what the return on investment is when you rent that list. I think we're seeing some of the same things with Twitter followers. There's a little bit of like a currency there. You can raise money. I mean, it hasn't been happening as much uh, this time, but there was the FEC approved actual fundraising via Twitter that you could embed links to raise money off of Twitter. Um, and so there is, there is some bottom line consideration. The other thing I would say is to be sure, there's definitely some you know, there's definitely some padding of the numbers on Twitter followers, but you see it when you like get into when someone comes at you who's a, a Trump follower or most particularly, I think I see this with Sanders followers. If I tweet something about how like Bernie Sanders has like a huge, a historic rate of small donations and Hillary Clinton has far less, and some of these prominent Sanders supporters retweet me. That tweet will get retweeted like thousands of times and completely kill my mentions to the point where I can't use Twitter. So there's, there's some right. Totally. Exactly. There's some real there's some real action there. So anyone anyone out there who's listening who wants to retweet my next tweet, it was really influential. Can get a lot of followers. Uh, don't do it. Exactly, real America. That's who follows Ken. I, I just think that the the bo the bottom line. Ken was talking about the bottom line impact of this, and I think that you know, and like Charlie makes a good point. It's like Donald Trump has a big enough megaphone. Whether or not you subtract these, you know, these twenty five percent fake followers. Same for Hillary Clinton, frankly. But in term, I, I think if just in terms of the like wider problems of conducting politics in the digital space, I think it's really interesting. There's millions and millions of dollars that are going to. We were talking earlier in the podcast. Well, you guys were talking. I was I was watching, but about you know ten or eleven million dollars flowing into a libertarian uh, super PAC and maybe like a savvy digital ad campaign, right? You know, how many, just just how many of, of the impressions that that super PAC buys are actually going to be going to real people, I think is, you know, a worthwhile question. I, on, the, on the Twitter uh, point, though, let me throw a little piece of red meat to Kristen because I know she's going to jump on this. Isn't it true, Kristen, to say that, I mean, doesn't this discussion about Twitter reveal what narcissists we are? And uh, doesn't it reveal the blind spots we have as political journalists, the idea that, you know, we hyperventilate over what's happening on Twitter and overvalue it? Hair on fire moments is what I call it. Something happens on Twitter and the media world explodes with their hair flaming everywhere. People rushing to get reactions and building big news leads. Every news organization is guilty of this. And what we need to do is sit back and take a breath and say, okay, is this real? Right? Is this Does this have journalistic merit? And instead what we do is just 
throw it right back into the world of Twitter where it lives its own separate life that is separate from reality. It's infuriating to me. So you win. You got me. But it, yeah, I mean, as you suggest, it does bleed over into real life, into stuff that real Americans would see. Because when there's a tweet that like really raises eyebrows internally here at 1000 Wilson Boulevard and some of the editors start emailing it around or worse yet, I've disabled Slack on my computer when they start <laughs> using the Slack to, can we run this down? What's going on here? I mean, I, no, I'm not saying in every case, I think that we do in fact apply the, the sort of critical analysis to these things and aren't going to rush up with something that isn't true. But there are certainly plenty of cases when something, when a story that becomes a significant story on Politico.com will have its sort of germination, its, uh, its, its genesis on Twitter. And so that's the way you see it bleed through. And then that story is picked up by Fox News that Real Americans are watching or some other station. Uh, so I, I, I share your, your sense that this is somehow divorced from uh, reality and bottom line concerns, of mo- voting concerns of, of, of most people out there in real America. But I don't think that we can just draw such a clear line because I do think it does have an impact in, in, uh, in, in the media coverage and in the political debate. And I think you're right about that. And I think that that, for the media industry, I think that's one of the things we need to walk away from the 2016 cycle thinking about. You know, how much were we driven by Twitter? How much were we d- driven by questions that were um, or fundamentally based on the true narrative at play, the true things that were happening inside the campaigns and the things that mattered to the voters? And this is one that's going to take a long time for us to uh, work through, to dissect, and to come up with real lessons that will guide our coverage in 18 and 20. Ken makes a really smart point there, and, and it's one we have to cop to as editors. You know, I mean, I know I've done that. I know we do that all the time, and it's a good opportunity to you know pull back the curtain for listeners and just explain. Like, it does happen a lot the way Ken uh, Ken laid it out. We will see something on Twitter, an editor, and then immediately fire it off to one of our reporters and say, is this true? What's happening? Uh, can you chase this down? And uh, I can't tell you how many email chains are like this, you know, in, in a newsroom like ours, and it's happening in all newsrooms, where uh, the editor sees something, wants to know, is it true? Is it not? And then this angry exchange uh, follows where the reporter says, it's not true, or this person is wrong, or, or, or says, I'll chase it down. But I mean, that is the, you know, one element of the modern newsmaking process. And, you know, there, there's definitely something that we can, something of value that we can take away from. I mean, it's not just a, a great way of communicating and Donald Trump, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, deserves a lot of credit or the blame for, for really pulling the uh, political debate onto Twitter because, you know, he, he, if you're, if you were like a journalist who was resisting Twitter before this campaign, you are now on Twitter because of Donald Trump. Yeah, tell me about it. But as to whether we can, you know, derive any real sense as to what regular people, what regular voters who ultimately decide these elections are thinking from Twitter. Probably not, but maybe there is some value there. I mean, we always used to talk about like David Broder and these old bulls of, of Washington political journalism, how much value they brought to the conversation by going out there and talking to regular voters. And be, we bemoan how that doesn't happen enough. And there's probably some something there as well. But maybe we are actually getting some feeling, some sense of the feeling of the themes that voters care about from Twitter. Maybe we're not. I don't know. That's it for us. Thank you, Scott Bland. Thank you very much. Ken Vogel. Fun time as always. Eli Stokel. Thanks. Charlie Matessian. Thanks, Kristen. 